Hi, I'm Jared Fuller. Welcome to Scratching the Surface. How do designers get their work featured in publications? Why are some architects from history remembered, their work heavily documented in the press while others are overlooked? What is the infrastructure that powers this small but powerful design media landscape? Behind the stories that get covered is a vast network of public relations people employed by studios big and small to help get coverage for their clients. I've witnessed this world from various vantage points as the host of this show, picking guests. I get you know pitches all the time of people who want to be on the show. As a writer, pitching stories about other people's work, I am working with these PR people. As an editor, I receive pitches of uh, new projects that uh, want to be featured. And even as a designer of projects uh, that I've worked on that are featured in various publications, it's a side of design publishing that rarely gets talked about. So I was completely taken with a new book that examines the role of PR in architecture history. Eva Hagberg's new book, When Aero Met His Match, attempts to think through all of these questions through the lens of Aero Saarinen's second wife, Aline Lokheim Saarinen, a former New York Times art critic turned studio manager and PR assistant to the architect. Eva's book looks at how Aline's writing helped shape our understanding of Aero's work and the way journalists would write about him at the time. But this book isn't just a biography. Eva also weaves into the narrative her own experience moving from journalist and writer to public relations consultant for architecture firms. And in doing so, she exposes the way stories get told, the way design is understood, and in some ways, the way is history gets written. After reading the book, I couldn't wait to have Eva on the show to talk about these ideas and the mechanics of design media. This is a subject that uh, longtime listeners will know I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by. But we also talk about the connections between the design process and the narratives built around them. We talk about how to write about yourself and sort of the art of memoir writing, especially in an architecture and design context. And we talk about the slippery edges between journalism and criticism and PR and op-eds and sort of the state of design media today. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. The transcript for this episode, as with all of our episodes, is available to our Patreon supporters. Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you who help support the show each month. In addition to full transcripts, we offer bonus interviews, monthly newsletters, and community discussions. Students can support the show for just $3 a month, and we offer additional tiers at $5 and $10 a month for all sorts of other bonus content and to get early episodes. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and get immediate access to all of this bonus content content. Thanks as always for listening. And here is my conversation with Eva Hagberg. You have this new book out called When Arrow Met His Match, which is about Aline Lukheim Saarinen, who was Arrow Saarinen's second wife. And when this book arrived, I sort of assumed that it was going to be sort of a straight biography of her uh, and her work. And it is that, but it is also much more than that. And I kind of want to talk about that with you. Um, Mm -hmm. Before we get into kind of the range of the book, can you talk a little bit about 
wh- how you first came across Aline's work and why it was so interesting to you and kind of how you started thinking about this? Yeah. So, um, so the year was, uh, I think it was like 2011. So we're now in truly ancient history (laughs) and I was finishing a master's thesis in architectural history. Um, and I was spending every Sunday afternoon in the PhD room in the architecture building at UC Berkeley and, uh, you know, typing this thesis and sort of regretting my choice of career and regretting everything that had led me to grad school <laughs> after my moderately successful career as a freelance writer in New York. And every so often, you know, reading Curbed because that 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 right. is what we do. Um, and I remember coming across, I think I think this was Alex Lang's. Uh, I think Alex Lang wrote the piece. Maybe that maybe I have the year wrong. Now I'm like trying to remember my citations. But um, I think it was around then. And I think it was Alex Lang and I think it was Uncurbed. Uh, and it was just like, okay. look at Aero Saarinen's adorable Valentine's cards to his wife. Mm. And so, you know, spring semester, I start reading these cards. I had recently started dating somebody and I was, I'm like a very romantic, love obsessive sort of person. So I was filtering everything through this experience, you know, of my new uh-huh. relationship. And so I look at these cards And I was like, I should start writing cards. Like, you know, like, this is amazing. I just sort of (laughs) always want to see like what people are doing, you know, because I'm like, I didn't get the manual. I'm probably doing something weird. So let me just see what somebody else is doing and copy it. So I start reading, you know, I I read all the cards that are on curb. And then I think there was maybe there was a citation or maybe not. But somehow I, I realized that the Smithsonian Archives of American Art had recently digitized the Arrow and Aline Saarinen collection. So being a diligent little grad student, I sort of make my way into the Archives of American Art online digital interface, and I discover just this trove of material, um, this trove of documents. And, you know, I sort of read them, I dip into them, and then I kind of put it out of my mind. Uh, I finish my master's thesis, I, you know, um, go through life. And at this, like around the same time I went to, and this is, this story is sort of documented in the book, but um, I was just in a grad school seminar and somebody gave a presentation on the Ambani residence in Mumbai, which was at the time the world's most expensive private house designed by Perkins and Will. And the student gave this entire presentation. And then she said at the end, you know, there's only one image of this house that's available, you know, that's published. And she made this entire sort of academic argument about that. And I realized that I knew why there was only one image that had been published, which was that Perkins and Will PR, you know, had probably negotiated some exclusive with a very, very fancy magazine like the New Yorker or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times magazine, you know, and that basically they had released one image, but that they were embargoing any further publications until, you know, they had a big, big exclusive. And so I sort of started thinking, like, is it possible that architectural historians don't actually know how the media works? Which would be interesting because architectural historians rely a lot on the media as, you know, as a source text. Um, So, you know, there's there's sort of a couple models of scholarship and one of them is that you fill in a gap and one of them is that you correct a misunderstanding. Right. And so I just sort of started thinking to myself, like, what if what if there was space to actually write about the way that the design media works? 
And then I sort of went on with another totally unrelated project about something else. And, you know, but I just sort of always kept this in the back of my mind. And in 2013, 2014, um, which my memory is a little bit confused because I also spent 2013 trying not to die, which we can get into. Um, but I, so I was trying not to die while also reading these archives while also trying to figure out, you know, a PhD topic. Um, and I, I knew I wanted to leave the architecture department. And so I needed something that was sort of really interdisciplinary. Um, so this was, this is now, we have a sort of combination of personal drives, which are to, you know, also send my then partner, Aerosarn and level love letters. We have an intellectual moment, which is to sort of see if there's something here that could make a good argument. And then there's just like, I was trying to, you know, come up with a project that was interdisciplinary. So I assembled this team of advisors and I said, you know, I want to tell this story. Um, I think I'd realized at that point that I wanted to write about the Saarinans in some way, and I needed to make a compelling argument for why I couldn't do this in architecture. Um, and my argument was that I was interested in the relationship between design and language um, in a way that sort of superseded architectural history. Um, I wanted to apply a sort of art historical analysis of letters as documents, which is like a really important part of my work where I look at letters very seriously as visual documents and as sort of literary artifacts. I was really interested in um, the way in which people begin to fashion themselves through epistolary mechanisms. Um, you know, I'm interested in autobiography from a sort of intellectual stance. So all those interests sort of coalesced. I wrote up this proposal and I said, you know, I can only do this with these five professors, not in the architecture department. Um, I got it through, you know, whatever gauntlets you got to get it through. And then I started, you know, researching what was then my dissertation. And I want to say also, if anybody is like, I do not want to read some grad student's dissertation, this book is not my dissertation. I just want to be very, very, very clear. It is not my dissertation. Um, but, you know, I researched a lot. I spent a lot of time. So, right. So then I go back into the archives and I look beyond the love letters and I find what to me just feels like this incredible collection of evidence showing one, how Aline really leveraged her position as an associate art critic for the New York Times, as somebody who was sort of in the mix in New York City media to, you know, both convince Arrow to leave his then wife, Lily Zarnan, very accomplished sculptor, um, and marry Elaine instead. But she also really, I contend, you know, professionalized this role, which is the architectural publicist, which exists today, which is a role that I'm intimately familiar with. Um, both on the receiving side of, you know, very, very skilled publicists and not to give the secret of the book away, but also a job that I did. Um, and so, I mean, that was kind of the, you know, that was the the convoluted path to to the scholarship that I did. And the sort of last thing that I'll say about it is that it was important to me in the book to disclose how kind of messy and improvisational and personally motivated my work had been, because I think one of the biggest fallacies around scholarship is that scholars are these people who have these sort of abstracted ideas that we find 
just intellectually fascinating and we devote our lives to them and we're underpaid and we're overworked, but it's because of this fealty to like a true intellectual passion. And that may be true for many people, but most of the scholars that I know, as you know, same with most of the people that we're kind of trying to work out something, you know, and we're, we're using a set of ideas. We're using other people as the medium, but really we're fundamentally interested in a few central questions, which I am no psychoanalyst, but often find their origins in some deep personal, you know, wound, drive, desire, whatever. So um, it was not only personally important to me, it's actually, it's not personally important to me at all to disclose the convoluted mechanisms behind the production of this book, but it is intellectually important to me to show all of that. Well, let me ask you this because you've set up basically all of my questions in that in that sort of journey <laughs> journey to this book, um, and I and I, I do want to underscore you know your your what you said is this book does not read like a PhD dissertation like it is very clearly something else and I mean that as a compliment. Um, Thank you. And you know as you as you hinted at there, the book is sort of this like hybrid uh, kind of biography of. Aline. It is mm-hmm. sort of a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, sort of media criticism of the birth of public relations or the birth of sort of, you know, architecture media, architecture and design media as we know today. And it has this memoir element of your own experience in there. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering to go back to kind of what you were saying there at the end about you know, a lot of scholars and people are just trying to figure something out in this book, in studying her, in reflecting on your own experiences. What were you trying to figure out in this sort Mm -hmm. of deep, uh, you know, you spent a lot of time with her through her letters. Mm -hmm. What, um, what were you trying to to figure out, do you think, for yourself? Or what did you figure out in, in this process? I got to say, Jared, everything I do is some attempt to understand how to be close to people. That's Mm. my driving. Mm. Like I long to be close to people and I fear being close to people and I long for (laughs) adequate and appropriate amounts of self-disclosure. And I cringe at the fact that I am a like very slightly public person. And so getting so close to Aline, starting to understand like how she got close to Arrow, how she stayed close to people that she worked with. I mean, that I think is really, you know, I was talking to, um, to a colleague, Carl Eric Fisher, who wrote this great history of addiction called The Urge. And he'd read my memoir and then he'd read this book. And he was sort of saying, you know, these are part of the same project. And I was like, these mm-hmm. are separate. I don't, you know, these are totally mm-hmm. different parts of my brain. And so it's really to, to Carl that I have to sort of credit this observation, which is that all of my work is about intimacy in some way, you mm-hmm. know? And so I'm interested mm-hmm. in different modes of intimacy. I'm interested in how we perform intimacy. Um, I realized that as a publicist, a lot of my work was very intimate. I became very intimate with my clients. And I write about that because I think that is, and and, and that is also a gendered experience. It was gendered for me. It was gendered for Aline. I'm very interested in the ways in which she, um, I don't think she like weaponized her femininity, but she, she absolutely represented herself as a 
sort of like a helpful, you know, she was like, I'm, I'm just arrows, you know, helpful wife. And she's mm-hmm. doing this like incredibly sophisticated media manipulation. She's playing record and form against each other. She's pretending to lose photos that she's mm-hmm. sending to other mm-hmm. people. Um, and so I was really thinking, you know, how do I have, uh, to use a very 2022 word, you know, how do I have boundaries with my clients? And and my boundaries were not great. And and I write about that. You know, I had clients right. where I got way too close and um, should have learned a lesson, maybe learned a lesson, not sure. Uh, but that all seemed like a very sort of rich um, ground for for me to sort of look at in various ways. I I, I want to come back to the sort of the memoir element in a second, and and this kind of question of intimacy that you're talking about. But just and and I realize that we are here to some extent to sell your book, um, and so I don't want to give too much of the book away. But for people who have not read it yet, can you talk a little bit about? what you were just sort of hinting at of the way Aline sort of became the publicist for Arrow, uh, sort of what that looked like and sort of how she's kind of developed that role. Can you just kind of give that brief history a little bit? Absolutely. Yes. So, um, so 1953, Aline Luheim is the associate art critic for the New York times. She's written a lot of amazing articles. She's sort of top of her game. Um, and she gets an assignment from her editor to go out to Bloomfield Hills and profile Aero Saarinen, who was just emerging from his father, Eliel's shadow. Uh, she flies it to Bloomfield Hills and they just, you know, according to the archives, immediately get it on, basically. Uh, you know, they yeah. seem to have like, uh, they have like a day of questioning and then there's this great letter where it says something like, you know, as we turn the corner, we also turn the corner. I think they held hands in the car and then they like, something happened in a, in a coat room. Uh, so anyway, so they, you know, they were living right. their best lives. Um, and she flies back to New York and they start corresponding and, and she, you know, is working on this article and, um, I mean, this is very scandalous. She sends him an advanced copy of the article and asks for his feedback and what he thinks. Right. And he writes back this right. beautiful letter where he says, like, you know, you got this wrong. That's two spanks for you. And, you know, so there's this mm-hmm. sort of like flirtation slash professional stuff, which just for me was just a gold mine. You know, I was just like right. reveling in this. So they sort of go back and forth. And then he, you know, she realizes that he's really ambitious. He, um, as he wrote to his psychiatrist, he really wanted to be the dean at Yale. And he was like a little bit shopping for a new wife. Uh, he felt that Lily Saarinen, Lily Swan Saarinen was, um, was great, but that she, you know, probably was not going to sort of send him into the stratosphere in which he wanted to be. And he had a couple options on the table. You know, he was like, hmm. there's a Swedish textile designer, Astrid Sampe, she might make me Dean at Yale, you know, so then Aline sort of, and again, we don't know what they talked about. All we have are the letters, but the letters are very helpful and that they say things like on the phone, we discussed blah, 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 you know, or right, like when I last, right. so I'm able to sort of piece together this thing, but basically Aline realizes, you know, one, she loves him, two, she believes in him, three, he's kind of on the make. Um, And so she sort of explicitly and implicitly um, says, you know, I would like to apply for the job of wife. Um, Here are my qualifications. There's this great letter where she says, you know, here's what I can do. Um, yeah, that important... that passage in your book just like blew me away of how <laughs> how clearly amazing. she just laid that out. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. Yep. She's like, what I can do is help you through talk to articulate your ideas. It's a paraphrase. She says it better, but she very explicitly says, like, I can help you because I'm good at talking about architecture. 
Right. Um, and Arrow, you know, for all his many skills, um, and I sort of get into this, you know, pre Aline was very sort of head in the clouds, you know, was like, I'm interested in humanism. And, and she really taught him how to talk about architecture. So they have this sort of courtship that um, happens mostly in letters and occasional visits. You know, he flies to New York on business. He, he puts himself up at a hotel. She sees him in the hotel. They send each other some very, very torrid letters all about their hotel nights, which unfortunately did not make it into the final <laughs> version. But maybe I'll do a, a special reading. Um, and eventually he divorces Lily and he and Aline get married and she moves to Bloomfield Hills and she takes up the position of head of information services, which I think is a really interesting title. So there were no architectural publicists at the time. Publicity as a field had sort of come into vogue 1920s, 1930s. Um, Edward Bernays was sort of the father of, of PR the art world had an understanding of PR, the financial sector had an understanding of PR, but architects really didn't. So Aline kind of, um, I would say maybe like reverse engineers this role. And she starts, um, she resigns her position at the New York Times. Um, at some point, somebody asks her to write about Arrow and she's like, well, we're going to get married next right. week. So I probably shouldn't. Um, so she resigns and then she just starts pitching his projects. And what's fascinating, I think, is that this is coinciding with a moment where magazines are really changing. There were a lot of architectural magazines, Douglas Haskell, you know, if I had it in me to write another biography, that's who I would do it of. Um, really oh, interesting, fascinating, right? I know, yeah. but I hate work. That's a problem. I mean, work, <laughs> you know, so, sounds like a lot of work. Um, so, so he, he's kind of working out, you know, how competitive is forum with record. Um, and I sort of trace this sort of the way that this group of people really started to solidify and codify what are now the rules of architectural publishing, right? Which are just considered, you know, you try to give it to the best magazine, they have an exclusive, but that wasn't always the case. I mean, there's this great letter where Douglas Haskell writes to her and he says, you know, we want to try something different where only we get the, get the story. Um, you know, I know normally you send the images to everybody, but maybe send them just to me. And we see her, you know, writing to Forum and saying, oh, you know, Forum, Forum is so great. Forum will do such a great, you know, don't even worry about record. I mean, rec you know, we just sent records some, you know, some whatever. I don't even know where these pictures are. Everything's a mess. Everything's chaos. Uh, and then she says to record, to uh, Cranston at record, she's like, ah, don't worry about Forum, you know, but uh, everything's, a, you know, so she's really just yeah. like kind of doing this amazing manipulation. And, um, and my argument you know, my one of many arguments in the book is that it was her ability to not only sort of manage where Saarinen's work was published, but how it was published and how it was written about that dramatically changed his career and his reputation. You know, I compare right. earlier publications of earlier projects like Kresge Auditorium, which is a sort of fascinating domed glass walled building um, at MIT. And the press was like, well, it has a dome. Uh, this building has some glass. It is, right. Right. you know, compared to Ingalls Rink, which is called the Yale Whale, you know, which is kind of catchy compared to TWA, where the New York Times is, um, you know, there's a great story called Bones for a Bird, and it shows all the wooden construction. And it's, uh, you know, the piece says something like, you know, this looks like a mess of wood, but it's actually going to be a soaring bird. And I've, you know, I've read all the 
conversations between Arrow and Aline and Aline and, and the press where she says, you know, this is a bird. This is a bird in flight. And right, Arrow actually was right. like, I kind of hate this bird idea. Can you stop with the bird? And she knew that, you know, she needed to give people sort of language and an ability to talk about metaphor, you know, use metaphor in yeah. architecture. So that's sort of the you know, the intellectual part is like, what is the role of language in in looking at architecture? What is the role of language in describing architecture? And I actually say in the book, and I say this now, I have no ability to see Arrow's architecture. People ask me if I'm a fan of Arrow, but my perception is so mediated through Aline's language that I actually can't analyze his buildings. I went to TWA and I was like, it feels smaller than I expect, you know, I, but it was so sort of linguistically right. interrupted by her efforts, which is what I was also really, really interested in is like how much are publicists secretly shaping through their use of language and metaphor and ideas that they're giving to the press, you know, our understanding of contemporary architecture. I, I want to ask you more about that broadly in a second, but I have one other question specifically about uh, Aline and Saarinen's relationship because I think that that argument that you just said comes across so clearly in the book about sort of pre-Aline. He he definitely had this trying to get out of his father's shadow. Mm-hmm. The 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 way the work was described was just in this like, you know, sleepy, kind of boring, very rigid way. And mm-hmm. it was striking to kind of see that before and after laid out so clearly in the book. Uh, and the way that language has shaped how probably all of us see his work today, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you saw the other side uh, um, or like the, the inverse of that, did having Aline there, having somebody who could craft narratives around these buildings, did that change how he designed at all? Mm. Do you think his later work was different in some way because of that? So that, I mean, that is such a great question. And that is one of the questions that I really grappled with. Um, there are some really early documents that I tried to get into that show, you know, he'll have a sketch and then on the sketch, she's written some notes and then the sketch changes and then she oh, writes interesting. notes. And so there is this iterative relationship between her narrative and his visual design. Um, I couldn't, you know, it's like historians look for the smoking gun. And again, there is no smoking gun here. It's all kind of patterns. Um, I think that, you know, I want to say that she did influence his design, but I think it's, I, I don't know that she did. And this is purely based on like my intuitive speculative sense Um, I think that he had an extremely clear vision. I think he was very interested in what certain materials could do and how certain, you know, like shapes could make people feel. And I don't think that she necessarily had much of an influence on how the design actually looked. But then again, it's so hard to track influence, right? It's, I mean, I just think about like all the people that have influenced me that I would probably say did not, you know, so um, 
I mean, even yeah. even as you're saying that, I'm almost wondering, is the question actually like a false dichotomy anyway? And that, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. The, the influence is that there is no separation between the design and the narrative anymore, yes. that they are so intertwined. And that goes back to what you were saying about you, you have no opinion of his work because it is so yeah. mediated. And that's just, that is actually the influence is that... Uh, the the design is is not separate from from the story or the narrative anymore, exactly. and I think that's exactly. that's what's so interesting about her in your book is that that is kind of how all of us experience all types of design. Basically, mm-hmm. is that there's mm-hmm. always a narrative around it, and I think, I mean, I've talked to I've talked to a bunch of uh, you know architecture critics at newspapers and and magazines about how they think about their audience, and this thing that's always interesting to me in this sort of global media landscape is that you're often writing about buildings that people will never actually see in real exactly. life. Exactly. And and I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about that a little bit sort of in the contemporary context about the role of publicity, the role of PR, or even the role of journalism, how you see that shaping and sort of the, the long tail of Aline's influence yeah. is shaping sort of design and architecture media today. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to figure out where to start. I think I think we start in, in 2003 when I graduate with a degree in architecture and I moved to New York to become an architecture writer because that's what my thesis advisor mm-hmm. told me to do. Um, and I had this image of what that would be. And, and, and the image was that I would sort of walk around and I would see a building on a corner and I would think it was a very interesting building. And I would write a 5,000 word, you know, mostly incomprehensible paper and I would submit it to log um, and it would get published. And that is not how it worked for me. Um, How it worked is that I had a mentor. um, I was working as his research assistant and he was writing a book about the World Trade Center reconstruction. And so I sort of started tagging along and and helping out and met a lot of editors and um, at magazines. And, you know, it was this sort of like heady time and the architects newspaper was just starting. And so there was money and, and, um, and I, remember not understand. So my editors would assign me a project, right? They would say, um, I think my first piece was about a stadium in Germany that came from Martin Peterson at Metropolis. And Martin, I, Martin and I are friends. Martin has told me since then that Philip, who was my mentor, kept telling him like, listen, you got to commission this, you know, this writer, she's really great. And Martin was like, I don't know, man, she's like 20 years old. Like, what can she, like, get off my back. So he gave me this sort of utterly impossible assignment, which was to write about like lighting design in this stadium in Germany. Little did Martin know, I grew up in Germany and I speak German. So I had this advantage. So I report this story, I file it. Martin's like, oh, you're actually really good. Okay, this is great. But I would wonder like, well, how did Martin know about this stadium? Like, like, what is, like, how did he find out about, you know? But I just kept getting assignments, so that was fine. And then I remember I had a question about an SOM project, a Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill project. Mm -hmm. And Philip said, oh, you have to email Liz Kubani. She's the SOM PR person. And I was like, okay, I don't know what any of those words mean, but sure. So I emailed Liz Kubani this, like, incredibly formal, bizarre email, you know, and just trying to explain, like I was writing a piece for the architects newspaper and I wanted some information from SOM and Liz wrote back and she was incredibly helpful. And she provided me, like, I think she set me up with David Childs, who was then, you know, like the head of SOM New York and like a big deal. And suddenly I'm on the phone with David Childs and I'm getting all these images. And then 
you know, maybe a couple of weeks later, Liz is like, hey, if you're interested in this, you know, let me also tell you this. And I'm like, damn, like Liz is so helpful. Like Liz is just giving me all this information. <laughs> this is so great, you know. Right. And then I meet this other publicist, Andrea Schwan, and Andrea Schwan takes me to breakfast at Balthazar. And she says, you know, I really love your writing and you're so smart and you're so great. And um, here's this really cool project by Herzog and Demuron. You know, I could send you pictures. And I'm like, God, Andrea is spending a lot of time sending me pictures. And I kept thinking that they were doing me favors because from my perspective, they actually were because right. then I had a project right. to pitch to magazines like Wallpaper. And it took right. me years before I realized that like it was their job to pitch me so that I would then pitch a magazine um, and that they were both incredibly good at their jobs. I mean, Liz remains, I think, sort of the the reigning titan of, you know, architecture PR. Um, and so I just sort of started learning about this really central role. And I also learned that there was an ecosystem and I learned that there was a hierarchy and I learned that magazines compete and that the exclusive, which as I'd read, you know, or as I would read later, um, you know, at the time that I learned, it was just like, you understood, you know, I sort of understood that there was a pecking order and where every magazine landed and how to, as a freelancer who needed to work to survive, um, how to start sort of leveraging that, you know? So I started writing for the New York times, which was really, really fun. And, and people call you back when you call them from the New York times. And I started writing for wallpaper, which people also call you back. Um, and so to sort of then take it out of, so, so I did that until the recession, um, which is when I went to grad school. Uh, okay. To sort of, you know, wait it out and, and see, see what could happen next. Um, but I think more broadly, like that was a very specific era. That era is over. Um, and I think now we're in this really interesting moment in media where half of the writers that you know are doing some kind of content marketing PR on the side. Legacy publications like the New York Times are doing content marketing, right? They have T-Studio. Um, Vice Magazine has virtue, their ad agents. I mean, it's like, it's not only people kind of doing two jobs at once, it's also publications. Um, And so I think that there's a lot, I mean, it used to be the divisions were absolutely black and white. You were a publicist or you were a freelance journalist or you were on staff, which was astonishing. I mean, I remember when like Nikolai Orosov was the New York Times architecture critic and it was just like, what would it be like to have a job where you get paid every two weeks and are an architecture critic? You know, it was like everybody wanted that job. Um, And I think now, you know, there's much more flexibility. I know a number of people who have you know, editorial positions at small magazines who also freelance write for other magazines who also do PR um, and everybody sort of understands and accepts it. I think there's a lot more acceptance now with the fact that people have to make money to live, Mm -hmm. um, which I think in the early 2000s, it was still like everybody kind of assumed that you had a trust fund. Like I remember realizing that like, the number of freelance design writers who were actually supporting themselves doing freelance design writing was fewer than the number of freelance design writers that were around. (laughs) I recently discovered that somebody who wrote a book uh, about architecture is like married to the daughter of a billionaire. And I was like, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I've had a couple of moments like that where it's like, 
oh, that explains how you do what you do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I will say I have a very supportive family. I grew up very comfortable, but I did not roll into New York with the trust fund yeah, and yeah. had to just scramble and really hustle. And that is part of why I was so successful is I was like, I need to eat. I need to pay rent. I'm just going to pitch the New York Times like 40 times a week. You know, I'm just going to like, and I've now sort of lost that drive because now I do PR and I make more money and I have a cushy life and, you know, it's great. I have two questions about that that are, I'm not sure if they're related or not. Um, and, And the first one is one that's kind of a question that I think about in my own work because I, I, you know, I get, I get PR requests for this show. I work as an editor for AIGA where, where, you know, PR for design studios are sending like, hey, can you feature this project? Mm-hmm. I worked as a designer at one time where I was, you know, sort of on the other side of that trying to kind of get press. And mm-hmm. I think that that blurring that you're talking about of, of like everybody's kind of doing everything is 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 true. And I I, I don't want this to sound judgmental and I don't want this to sound like oh, I wish it wasn't this way. But I'm wondering if you have thoughts on what that means for architecture and design media. And specifically, mm-hmm. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about even just like differences between journalism and criticism or like the the op-ed versus the the like, you know, the sort of PR, you know, piece mm-hmm. that's just published on on the design site. Does mm-hmm. it matter if all of these are blurring? Do you think is, is there like... I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll just tell you like what I'm thinking of. Like sometimes I'll get a pitch and it's like, hey, could you write about this? And I'm like, I kind of do want to write about this, but because I don't like it, you know, like I kind of yeah. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm critical of this and I feel conflicted about that. Uh, may, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm kind of curious about like, you know, what you think about all of these blurring together that that mm-hmm. even the idea of the architecture critic, like what mm-hmm. does it mean to be a critic Mm-hmm. today in this type of media landscape? Sorry, that was a big question, but do you know what I mean? That's a great question. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I mean, that's one of the things that I was so interested in in thinking about this book is looking at, um, just to go back in time for a minute, right? So, so many architectural historians have used media media appearances, media freak, right? You look at the Avery Index, mm-hmm. which catalogs how many times yeah. somebody's been published. And historians have taken that as deserved in some way, right? I think there's been this idea mm-hmm. that if this person was published a lot, if this person became famous, it's because their work was better. And so part right. of what my book is trying to do is say, yeah, their work was 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 good. It needed to be good to get a good publicist. But if you don't look at the fact that there was a publicist whose full-time job was making friends with editors and making right. friends with journalists, you're kind of, you know, so I wanted to kind of undo even this myth that even, you know, architecture critics for the New York Times, they're getting hit up by publicists all day, every day, right? So right. I think I had this sort of idea that there are, um, you know, to go to the sort of premise of your question, I did believe that there were critics who were protected by being on staff, um, who, mm. you know, because for me as a freelancer, let's right. say a publicist pitches me a project and I destroy that project. I'm not going to get another pitch from that publicist. And that publicist mm-hmm. is probably representing seven to 10 other architects that I would really like to write about and pitch to wallpaper. So I, I'm incentivized as a freelancer, right? So there is sort of like a distinction between staff writers and freelancers and freelancers are much more precarious than staff writers. 
But staff writers also, you know, are in this mix. I know of some famous um, cases. Blair Kamen at the Chicago Tribune famously refused to accept a cup of coffee or a bottle of water from anybody that he would ever right. potentially write about and and really sort of maintained this um, this kind of air and, and truth of independence. And I think it allowed Kamen to actually do a lot of really important work in Chicago um, and write a lot of really necessary things about the city, right? But so I do want to, I think aside from Kamen, and I don't know the rest of the critics, but I do want to kind of even undo this idea that maybe there are like journalists and critics who are sort of unimpacted by this. I, I, I think that's pretty, once you kind of think about it and you know about it's like, it's yeah, hard to yeah. believe that there's anybody who's really like pure uh, in, in some in some way, right? And maybe this yeah. is super cynical. So then I think the question is like, well, what is the point of all of this, right? So if we have architecture critics, like what is the role of, of the architecture critic? And this is something that I think is discussed in, in panel discussion. You know, every year somebody's like, what is the role of the critic? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all look at Huxtable, Otto Louise Huxtable, first full-time, yeah. you know, critic for a newspaper yeah. and how she really influenced development. She really, you know, she would write something and people paid attention and, and, and the city changed. And the question now, or at least that's the mythology, you know, I, 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 I welcome correction from a Huxtable scholar. Um, and I think now, you know, I'm sort of torn because on the one hand, I think, well, you know, we don't have that kind of power anymore. We, the you know, collective we. And on the other hand, I think about, you know, reporting like, uh, I should remember who reported this, but some, I think it was City Lab reported on how related companies funded Hudson Yards by doing this incredibly oh, yes. complicated, right? Yes. I remember that. Yeah. Remember this? Yeah. They like took money that was meant for like upper Manhattan community development. And they somehow claimed that Hudson Yards was like geographically contiguous with with, right. I mean, I'm totally butchering this story, but it was like pretty explosive, right? Yeah. Um, and and so that's important, but, you know, did anything happen as a result? Did anybody stop going to Hudson Yards? I, I don't know. I don't know if they would, you know, it's it's sort of hard to, to see in the world of architecture and design, like what happens when there are, you know, explosive bombshells. I mean, Vessel being closed because people right. were right. dying by suicide. I mean, that is... I think an example of events becoming media, becoming, um, you know, influential in some way on on public space. Um, but I think that, you know, maybe this is my like inherent hedonism or or something. But I sort of think that the role of all writers is to entertain and provoke in some way. You know, to provoke an intellectual mm -hmm. reaction, an emotional reaction, and so. I've sort of like hung up my hat in terms of debating like how some, and I don't think this is the question that you asked, but I'm answering a different question now, but it's like, you know, the, the role, I see my role as somebody who writes about buildings in, in very sort of personal emotive ways is to just get somebody to accidentally read about architecture and then mm -hmm. accidentally notice some architecture and then maybe make a different choice in their lives or just have a moment of reflection or understand why they feel a certain type of way in one building and a different way in another. Like, I, I, I think I used yeah, to think yeah. 
that I could write about a building and somebody would really have their mind blown, you know, that they'd be like, wow, like architecture. And now if somebody reads something that I write and they're like, oh yeah, weird. That's enough. <laughs> so I think yeah. it's or even like, if just someone reads it generally, I'm happy. <laughs> just yeah, a reader, t- one totally. reader. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was sort of like a maybe a convoluted answer, but that's that's what I got. Let me ask you a, a, a more sort of specific version of that because you write a lot in the book about how your experience as a journalist, as an architecture writer both came in handy and influenced when you moved to the other side and started doing PR for for, uh, architecture studios. And you Mm -hmm. kind of traced that with Aline's also background in in journalism. I'm curious Mm -hmm. about the other side. How did now being on the PR side, and you're still writing for all sorts of publications about architecture and other subjects, now being on that other side and, and, you know, continuing to write, has that changed how you write or how you approach subjects? Um, it maybe should have, but it hasn't. Uh, so I have been granted the gift of compartmentalization. Um, I'm an Mm. extremely good compartmentalizer. Uh, it's how I, it's how I live my life. It's how I manage. That's the key. Yeah. And it's funny because I was actually, I was just corresponding with, um, with an editor of the Architects newspaper. So the Architects newspaper one is reviewing this book. I don't know who's reviewing it. Uh but they're reviewing it. So, um, so that's, that's something that's happening. I all, I also reviewed Alex Lang's great book, right. Meet Me by the Fountain right. for the Architects newspaper. Um, I also, as a publicist pitched a profile of a firm that just came out. So, so this editor and I have three kind of overlapping points of contact, right? One is mm-hmm. that I'm the PR person for the story that he's doing. The second is that I'm the writer who is, behind on my deadline trying to do a good job um and then the third is you know i'm the author of a book that that he's i guess managing the review of and we were doing a you know i have two separate email addresses we were were doing a really good job sort of pretending together that whatever we were emailing about at the moment i've been in that same situation (laughs) yes it's so great and then finally you know so from my from my personal gmail account you know it's like here's my review sorry it sucks i tried to make it good you know (laughs) sorry it's boring i don't know whatever you know and then for my professional email i'm like delighted to send these photos let me know if you need anything else you're very (laughs) professional very responsive um I was late on something else and I emailed my editor the subject line, sorry, I'm the worst, you know, <laughs> but then like professionally, I'm like, hello, let me introduce you to the, you know, and I'm, they know I'm the same yeah. person. Right. But again, I'm so interested in roles. Right. And that's something that I talk about a lot in the book is like Aline's different roles. And, and so, um, and then finally this editor was like, I'm so sorry to cross wires on the same thread, but can you just give me your publicist email address? <laughs> I was like, yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. And that was sort of the only acknowledgement. Um, so I don't know. I try to really, I think it helps me to know that a lot of other people are doing this, that I'm not the only person who's kind of both doing PR and writing. But when I first started doing it, I had a lot of fear around it. And I remember, you know, pitching a contact at wallpaper as a publicist for the first time and kind of drafting this just like paragraph of explanation, you know, that was like, I, you know, I have student loans and um, you know, I, I just like, I need to pay the bills. And like, so I, you know, I'm doing this thing and, um, you know, like really not with the same confidence that I would pitch pieces as a writer. 
And then I remember I had a really great coffee with an editor at a magazine and we just been, you know, she'd heard of me, I'd heard of her. So we got a coffee and I said, like, can I pitch you as a writer and can I pitch you as a publicist? And she was like, a hundred percent, just make it clear what hat you're wearing. And so that sort of gave me like eternal permission, you know, to, to do all these things. But, you know, I, I, when I think about like even reviews of this book, most of the people who are editors at these magazines are people that I've been friends with for a long time. Right. Mm -hmm. So part of me is like, are there just going to be good reviews of the book because these people know me and like me? And then I remember that like, no, because they're probably not going to assign reviews to my friends. But it does make for sort of a layer of like, if the book gets good reviews, is it because it's a good book? or because my friends are commissioning the reviews. So even like the process of publicizing the book, like the book kind of shows that ev- everything is this like personal, you know, and when, when we had our mm-hmm. first meeting, our first publicity meeting, my editor was like, can we just acknowledge that we're doing a publicity meeting about this book yeah. about publicity? Um, but I just have to kind of, I don't know, I'm very influenced by my, friendship with and working relationship with Marianella DePrile, who is now the deputy deputy editor at New York Review of Architecture and a phenomenal freelance writer. And she sort of helps me to just have like a lighter touch with all of this. You know, it's just like, Mm -hmm. we're here for a short time. We're here making arguments, you know, her sort of main driving force is always politics, you know, so she's really, really good at contextualizing architecture politically, but also being like, yeah, this kind of, and this is going to sound really dark, but it's kind of all just like, and this is now my philosophy, not hers, but it's like, it's all just kind of a way to pass the time, you know, like (laughs) there's a lot of ways that I could pass my time on this, on this earth. And I've chosen a combination of PR freelance writing, memoir writing and trying to sell lamps, you know, and raising a cattle dog. Like, yeah. Okay. And again, that was part of what I was interested in exploring with the book was like sort of demythologizing even people like tremendously important architects. It's like Eero Saarinen was also just kind of trying to pass the time. Aline Saarinen was also just trying to pass, you know, like there's this way in which I think we're, we're taught as historians to be so sort of precious about like, people's motivations, you know, there's this big thing and sort of this, one of the schools of history that I was taught where it's like, what is this person's motivation? And I was always like, you know, my motivations have only ever been the search for fame, the search for personal security, trying to impress somebody that I want to hook up with. Like my motivations are like, and I don't think I'm alone, you know? So that's sort of also what I'm interested in doing as a historian is being like, maybe we're all just like doing our best (laughs) trying to like, make a little money, you know? Yeah, for sure. Totally. I mean, and this leads in, this leads in nicely to kind of my last series of questions because the the piece of this that we haven't talked about is the memoir aspect of both mm-hmm. the book and your work generally. I mean, uh, uh, in addition, there's, you are in the book a lot. Yep. Um, your story is in the book a lot. You previously published a, a memoir, How to Be Loved, which you kind of referenced earlier and and about the kind of the year you were trying to to survive um you've written personal essays for non-architecture publications Mm -hmm. i'm to to start and to kind of set up this few questions that i have to to kind of wrap up the conversation 
can you talk about the decision to kind of blend memoir into this book? And especially you were talking to your friend who said these books are the same are the same. And you said, no, these yeah. are two separate things. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have some sort of drive to speaking of motivation <laughs> to to make this an architectural history book or, or where when did m- memoir become a part of this book? So um, I have to thank reviewer number two, uh, Mm. whose identity I don't know, but um, the original draft just had a little section, it just had a preface and it said, you know, just by way of background, like I used to work as a journalist and then I also worked as a publicist. And so that sort of informs this book. And then the rest of the book was only about Aline. Mm. And reviewer number two, um, you know, academics will know reviewer number one usually said, God, you know, amazing book, incredible, no, no changes. And reviewer number two is often the one who's like, eh, I don't know. So reviewer number yeah. two was like, I don't know. Um, you know, had some really, really amazing suggestions. And one of their suggestions was to actually bring my personal experiences into, into much clearer focus. And they thought that, you know, the two and a half pages that I had written about my own work were, were interesting and they wanted to read more. And so, hmm in discussions with my editor about sort of how to revise, um, I had this really, really lovely conversation with, with, uh, with my editor, Michelle Comey. And I was still feeling like, you know, this is a very serious book and um, very serious book to my mind meant, you know, nothing personal, which again, this project tries to undo. And Michelle said, well, what book would you write if you didn't worry about any of that? You know, if you could just write the book that you wanted to write. And I was like, oh, I would write this sort of hybrid, you know, I would kind of just write it like Eva style, you know, and Michelle was like, great. I would like you to do that, you know, and that was why I wanted to be with Princeton is, is Princeton University Press has this sort of incredible editorial, I think, creativity and latitude and flexibility, even though they're an academic press. And so when Michelle sort of said, you know, just, just be yourself, I was like, oh my God, I have permission from Michelle, from viewer number two. And I just thought, okay, well, how would this work? And then I came up with the structure of these sort of alternating chapters that kind of thematically relate, you know, so they're not direct, right. but they really, I, and the personal chapters are shorter um, than the historical ones, but I really wanted to sort of introduce themes, introduce ideas, introduce moments, and kind of just set the reader up, you know, emotionally, um, imaginatively to then read the next section, uh, which I think just gives it more, you know, it gives it more mm-hmm. grounding, but also, you know, for somebody who maybe doesn't want to just read a biography of a random person in the 1950s, it's like, it's a little bit of a snack, yeah. you know, it's like a little treat. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to tell you how I felt when my client died. You know, I'm going to tell you how I felt when my client fired me because I, you know, in retrospect got way too close. Um, you know, I'm going to write about those things. Um uh- so, I mean, this is so this is so interesting to me for a variety of reasons. I was as I was reading your book, I was thinking about um, Justin Beale's recent book, Sand Future, which was a similar. Uh-huh. Your, your books are very different, but his book was sort of hybrid memoir mm-hmm. biography. And I had him on the show and talked about and we talked about this also because I have been trying to write more personally mm. um, and it is hard weirdly hard for me uh-huh. to do um you know I love talking about myself I I think this show in many ways is a show that's really about me and my interests um I'm very good at analyzing and 
talking about and discussing the work of others. Uh, mm -hmm. But then when I need to write about either myself or my own work, it becomes very stilted and very hard for me. Mm. And, and I've been trying to kind of like think through that and work through that a little bit and, and to try to get some more of my, my, my kind of personality and my kind of personal life into the work in some way. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious if the processes are different for you, uh, whether you are writing about, uh, you know, something for the Architects newspaper, or you are writing a kind of personal memoiristic essay or book. Um, how are those processes similar or how are they different for you? Yeah. So, for, I mean, I'm so curious about your situation and why why you don't like to write about yourself, but maybe we can. I'm, I'm curious about it, too. I don't know. Why. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I will say my my secret is that they are absolutely the same. Um, and this mm. is my greatest uh, skill and it is my greatest downfall because I see every problem as a literary one, right? I see every mm. writing opportunity as a chance to hopefully elicit, a, as I said before, a thought, a feeling, an observation, um, a disagreement, an argument. And so I, I am as dispassionate about writing about people that I've slept with and how I felt about it as I am writing about, let's say, Alex Lang's book. And mm -hmm. so the process is very similar, which is that I have an idea and I sort of, I think I had about the scale of the idea, right? So it was clear to me that the Saarinen project was a book. So that meant that I had to have a lot of, you know, I needed to have, I think one or two sort of central arguments and then I wanted to have a general feeling for the for the book. And so that sort of sustained me. And every time that I wrote about a, that, I wrote a personal section in the back of my mind, I was thinking, how does this advance my central argument? You know, and then mm -hmm. anything that was useful to the central argument was fair game. Um, when I write, you know, I think maybe the most personal essay that I I've written a few very personal essays, but I wrote one for Guernica about having brain surgery and right you know, what that sort of felt like. And, and the essay is really about the sort of limits of language, because when I was going through this experience, people kept saying to me, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I kept saying, I can't either. You know, I right. also can't imagine. Yeah. I'm experiencing it and I can't imagine it. And so the essay is this attempt to kind of articulate how difficult it is to articulate what's going on um, in a way that isn't annoying, you know, like it's just sort of, right. a re you know, you right. read it and, and, and you don't really know that's what it's about. And then you're like, oh, that's sort of what it's about. Um, you know, or my memoir, How to Be Loved, I was really interested in kind of undoing the myth of the, of the graceful sick person. You know, I wanted mm. to show like, you know, I got really sick and I, I had a bad attitude and I wasn't brave. And um, I thought it was really stupid what was happening to me. And I was very upset about it all the time. And yet people loved me. And, you know, three mm. people in particular loved me in moments that were extremely difficult. And so I write about those relationships and that, and that love. And I was also interested in exploring, um, you know, really kind of offering a counterpoint to, I think, this very capitalist American idea that like sickness always gets better um, that suffering is something to be sort of gotten through. So the point is like, I, I'm interested in these ideas and I just think to myself, well, what is the best medium for this idea? Um, and what that results in is work that often is perceived as being incredibly intimate and incredibly vulnerable. And a, I've been with my therapist for, I think, 12 years now. 
And a discussion that we keep having is, is my work vulnerable? Um, and I keep saying that it is not, that I am constructing scaffolding, that I am, you know, a, a, as I said, dispassionate writer who's mm-hmm. simply picking up a set of tools and I'm, and I'm using them and I'm manipulating them and I'm, and I'm wielding them and what everybody reads. And this is true is like a very edited, very controlled, very careful representation of right. events right. that yes, have occurred to me. Um, but laid out in such an order that they produce or elicit some sort of, you know, affective response. Um, and I say that to her and she says, well, how do you feel about your book coming out? And I say, um, I wish I'd never written it. And I don't know why everybody needs to know this about me. And like, why yeah, didn't anybody yeah. stop me? You know, so yeah, yeah. There's, there's a constant tension. And one of the things that I, that I wonder to myself is if I've constructed this elaborate sort of mechanism of self-protection where I say, no, 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 don't worry. That's simply the art. You know, I'm back here. I'm, I'm completely safe. And, um, and whether that's just like an elaborate, you know, coping mechanism. Um, but I know that practically when I am writing, I'm using the exact same tools, you know, the exact same questions should this be a scene? Should this be dialogue? Why isn't this working? You know, I wrote in How to Be Loved, I write a death scene of sort of the other main character. You find out she's going to die on the first page. This isn't a spoiler. But what I wanted to do with her death scene was show that even though I had anticipated her death throughout the book, as I had throughout our relationship, when it actually happened, I was utterly shocked. Mm -hmm. And writing that, you know, was a very technical challenge. The challenge was like, how do I represent the shock, even though I've been purposefully foreshadowing, you know, this death for 200 pages. Um, And so that felt like a very, I mean, I sort of, I think that moment is the one that I think about the most because it was such a technical issue that I solved by using you know, a lot of really close dialogue um, and then sort of pulling way back and and letting some sort of anger and emotion mm-hmm. into the sentence. But again, that was all very purposeful. So I sort of feel sometimes like I'm missing, you know, I often ask my therapist if I'm a psychopath because I feel like I'm missing <laughs> some... You know, people have said, you know, people have sometimes been not that surprised that I've asked my therapist that. But it's like, I think that there there are a lot of memoirists who I respect very deeply who talk about, you know, God, they're just, you know, it's very visceral. There's like, there's blood, there's sweat, there's tears on the page, yeah, you know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're agonizing, they're taking breaks, you know, they're really, it's hard to go back there. It's hard to remember. And I coach writers sometimes and I have to remind myself that, that I'm sort of unusual again in this ability to compartmentalize um, and be more sympathetic to people who are like, it's very emotionally difficult to write about the most difficult time in my life. And I'm just like, what a treat. Right. I get to, you know, look at this right, material. Like right. when I got divorced, I was like, hell yeah. Now I get to, yeah. I mean, not in the moment. In the moment I was like, I would like to die. This is the worst thing I've ever experienced. But now I'm like, what a gift. I have a whole well of material. Let me just go in there. So, right. yeah, it's a little, there's something in there, uh, you know, there's something in there for, for my readers or something in there for my therapist. There's, you know, something in there for you, but 
yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that there and ask you the last question that I ask all of these, uh, that I end all of these conversations with. I'm curious what you're reading right now. Ooh, um, I am reading The Right to Sex by, mm-hmm. um, oh, Basson. I don't know their first name, um, which is very interesting. And it's this book about kind of how we view sex as a society now. And, um, I think they wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books or London Review of Books. Anyway, I'm reading The Right to Sex. Um, and I'm reading the Kim Kardashian profile in Vogue magazine from a couple months mm. ago. Um, I am reading, I'm always reading like a couple of books at the same time. Oh God, I'm reading Ghost Lover by Lisa Tadeo. I think that Lisa Tadeo, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, is the best writer on desire that I have ever read. I read Three Women a couple of years ago, which is this incredible sort of three-part um, beautiful long form narrative nonfiction about three women and their relationships. And I remember just thinking like, I want to read this book every day. And then she has a short story collection, ghost lover. And I, I mean, everybody should, if you're interested in humanity and design, it's just the way that she articulates, um, fantasy and the way that like, we can sort of see one tiny little crumb of something, you know, we look through a Mm. keyhole and we construct Mm -hmm. a whole world. I mean, she just like describes longing and desire and hope and fantasy so incredibly well. So I'm reading ghost. I mean, that's like a special treat. I read that as slowly as I possibly can. Um, And I'm reading every issue of the New York review of architecture, fascinating, great new publication coming out of New York. So it's kind of what's on my rotation. Your book is called When Arrow Met His Match, and I loved it a lot. Uh, it, it talked about so many of the things that I'm interested in, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about it and all of those things. Eva, thanks well, for being on the so podcast. Glad. Thanks for having me. This was such a pleasure. This episode was recorded on August 9th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Corrissani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>